keep your eyes on the sky for a comet. Another Mars rover has died. The leaky Soyuz is going to be replaced. Webb dominates the American Astronomical Society meeting and is Starship just around the corner? All this and more in this week's episode of Space Bites. As you know, the universe owes me a bright comet. It's been decades since we've seen an amazing comet in the sky. Remember Hale-Bopp? Remember Hyakutake? Even Comet Halley? We haven't had anything like them. We've had promises, but nothing has really showed up. And I'm sad to inform you that we won't get another bright comet with this next one that everyone is talking about. This is C2022 E3 ZTF. And the ZTF stands for the Zwicky Transient Facility. This is an automated robotic telescope that is scanning the sky looking for objects. And it first found this comet back in March 2022. And astronomers have been doing follow on observations, plotting its trajectory and have figured out where and when it's going to be in the upcoming months. Now, the good news is that it is going to be coming relatively close to the Earth. When it was first discovered, it was at magnitude 17. And for those of you who know how telescopes work, that's really dim. But as it gets closer to the sun, as it brightens, as its tail grows, it's going to get up to magnitude five. Now, is that a lot? No, magnitude five is about as bright as you can see with the unaided eye. So the, in perfect dark skies, you can just see a magnitude five object. But the good news is that this comet is going to be going across the sky and it'll be really well positioned for folks in the northern hemisphere while it's at its closest and brightest point. And it's going to go through some very recognizable, very familiar constellations. So if you know where Cassiopeia is, you know where Perseus is, the comet is going to be at its closest point, its brightest point when it's moving between those constellations. And that means that if you can find Cassiopeia, take a pair of binoculars, scan around the sky, and you should see it. You should be able to make out the comet, its tail. You can point your camera at it, take some long exposure, astrophotography, share some pictures that you've taken of Comet C2022E3. I will definitely be out. Now we've got an article on Universe Today that sort of shows the entire path of the comet, the various constellations that it's going to be moving through, the various times it's going to get brighter. And you can use that to figure out what observations. But in general, early February, looking Cassiopeia, pair of binoculars, you should see a comet. Another Mars rover is gone. It was just a couple of weeks ago that we had to say goodbye to NASA's Mars InSight lander. Of course, the dust clogging up its solar panels, it got less and less sunlight, less and less power, and it finally shut down. And that was the last that we've heard from it. And now the dust has claimed another victim. And this is China's Zhurong rover, which has been wandering the surface of Mars for the last couple of years. So the rover was put into a hibernation mode because it's winter time on Mars and temperatures get down to negative 100 Celsius. It's very cold, very hard on the batteries. And because of the dust on its solar panels, it wasn't able to provide enough energy to keep itself warmed up. Now, the controllers at China were expecting it to return contact on December 26th. They listened, they waited for a signal, and they didn't hear it. And so that means that it probably didn't have enough power, wasn't able to get its batteries warm enough to be able to resume operations. Now, it's not necessarily completely dead. We don't know what's going on. They haven't declared that it's offline and canceled the mission and says that it's over, but 
they were expecting to hear from it, they didn't. And so obviously, they're going to keep trying to maintain contact with the rover, but it's safe to say that this is the end of it. Of course, there's still the orbiter portion of the mission and that's still going strong, still orbiting around Mars, sending signals back to Earth. So they continue the orbital part of the mission, taking pictures of the planet. It's just that the lander and rover have gone offline. And China was the second country to ever be able to land a mission successfully on the surface of Mars and deploy a rover. The Soviets and Eventually, the Russians tried many times and failed on all of them. Other nations also attempted to land missions safely on the surface of Mars. And as I say, Mars eats spacecraft for breakfast and gobbled them all up. But the Jurong rover was able to land successfully and do a lot of interesting science. Now, there's a couple of really cool things about the Jurong rover. One is they took a selfie camera with them, placed it down on the surface of Mars, and then drove back from the camera and they took some pictures of itself. And I've never seen that done before. They had something very similar done with the orbiter. They had a separate little spacecraft that floated free of the orbiter and took pictures of it from space. And this is something that I think people have been asking NASA to do like, come on, send a little camera that can take some selfies of your spacecraft. And China did that with both of its both its orbiter and its lander, which I thought was really cool. The other thing is that Jurong was equipped with a ground penetrating radar system. And this allowed it to peer down under the surface of the regolith several meters below, and it was able to map out the structure of the ground and a very similar system was sent with the Chang'e 4 mission that was sent to the moon, it had a ground penetrating radar that was able to peer down under the regolith and really map out the shape and the size starting at the dust at the surface of the moon, all the way down to larger and larger pebbles, boulders, and get down to the bedrock and having a rover that has that ground penetrating radar that can look down below the surface is just something that we've never seen before. And it's, it's sort of a really interesting specialization coming out of China, I sort of imagine like if we see a Chinese mission that doesn't have a ground penetrating radar from this point on, I'm gonna, it's like Canada putting arms on everything. So I hope to see more missions in the past. I do hope Jurong comes back. But like I said, the the odds don't look great. Soyuz is going to be replaced after all. An update on the Soyuz spacecraft that was docked with the International Space Station. Of course, it made news a couple of weeks ago when some kind of micrometeorite or maybe a piece of space debris slammed into the capsule and created a coolant leak. And we got this, I guess, snowy season on the International Space Station as we saw this coolant spraying out from the Soyuz out onto the station. And without the coolant, the temperature inside the Soyuz capsule just continued to rise and rise and was getting up to about 40 degrees Celsius. And the question is, is this safe? Is it safe for the cosmonauts to climb into the Soyuz capsule and return to Earth with a malfunctioning coolant system? Now, they could probably handle the temperature getting up to about 40 degrees Celsius inside the Soyuz. But can the computer that's going to be guiding them home, can that handle the high temperatures? Russia didn't know. And so better to be safe than sorry, they have decided that they're going to send up a replacement Soyuz spacecraft. And this is the one that they were already getting prepared for the next mission to the International Space Station. But instead of it carrying a crew of cosmonauts, they're just going to send it up empty autonomously. And then it's going to dock with the station. And then this is the one that the cosmonauts will use to return home, they're gonna have about a month where they have no way 
to get back from the International Space Station until that replacement Soyuz arrives. And so I guess if something really catastrophic happens to the International Space Station, they can all climb into the Crew Dragon because it's got room for seven people. But hopefully that won't be required that the next Soyuz will dock with the station. That will provide the lifeboat for the cosmonauts to be able to return home and then the next mission will arrive and it'll just be back to business as usual. But just like another reminder that space is dangerous and we can never just take it too casually when we are pushing out beyond Earth. We've got a whole bunch of news from the JWST. You might be aware that this week is the American Astronomical Society's meeting. They do two of these meetings every year. And when this happens, there is an absolute deluge of space news. Many, many stories every day. Too many for us to be able to report on. We have to pick and choose the best stories. And this is the first time that the American Astronomical Society has met since the launch and deployment of James Webb Space Telescope. And so all of those observations that were made over the last couple of months, the scientists are finally ready to report a lot of their discoveries. And so we got just story after story after story. And so I'm just going to give you just a few highlights. There were many, many stories coming out of JWST. The first one is that JWST was used to confirm an exoplanet. And this was one of the planets that was first found by TESS, the transiting exoplanet survey satellite, which is like the finder telescope for JWST. It's finding the locations of all of the planets that are transiting in front of the stars within a few dozen light years of Earth. And then any really interesting candidates that get passed along to astronomers with other space telescopes to do follow on observations. And so one of these was passed along to JWST. And the planet is called LHS 475b. And it's only located about 41 light years away. And Webb was brought on board to confirm whether or not this really faint transiting signal found by TESS is actually a planet. And of course, JWST is so much more powerful than TESS. And it was able to confirm with just absolute certainty that yes, indeed, an Earth sized planet is passing in front of its star on a regular basis. We've got confirmation that the planet exists, but we don't really have any information about the atmosphere yet. The astronomers are still trying to study and work out what are the constituents of the atmosphere so we can wait for that. But this is the first time that Webb has been used to take what is a tentative signal, a candidate planet and confirm that absolutely there is a planet there. And it's a very interesting target because it's the same size as Earth. Here's another really cool picture from JWST. And what you're looking at is a disk of dust orbiting around the star AU Microscopium, which is located about 32 light years away from here. And astronomers have found a couple of planets in this star system in the past. And we know this is a very newly forming star system. The star is probably only about 23 million years old, but the planets finished forming probably about 10 million years ago go. And so what's left is this debris disk of dust. And what you're looking at is the smashed up pieces of planetesimals crashing into each other, all that leftover debris that's in the star system after the planets have already formed, it are continuing the mayhem. And we know that something very similar happened here in the solar system early on in our evolution that 
you know, something the size of Mars crashed into the Earth and helped create the moon. But you can look at the surface of the moon and see all of the impacts that happened after that. And so we're seeing this process really early on in the formation of the solar system. Using James Webb, they were able to essentially measure the size of the dust particles and the planetary debris particles in this system and just sort of get a sense of how long this process takes after the planets form. How long do you still have this debris until it either all gets scooped up or blasted out of the star system by the radiation from the sun. So it's a really great observation. What I really like is you can see where the coronagraph on James Webb is being deployed. That very center part that should be the very bright star that's going to be obscuring the rest of the image. But because James Webb can block the light from that star, you get the fainter dusty disk around it. And we got some images of extremely primitive galaxies seen by JWST. Now these galaxies, you're seeing them as they appeared 13.1 billion years ago, really when the universe was about 5% of its current age. And what's really fascinating about this, they're, they're primordial galaxies, really the first structures that would be forming in the universe. And we actually have a very similar analogy that astronomers have found closer by and they're called green pea galaxies. And these galaxies are these weird mysterious blobs that turn out to be green in the observations made by the astronomers. Now the green now they're not really shining in green. That's an indication of the chemicals that are in them. They actually shine very brightly in ultraviolet because there's a tremendous uncountable amount of star formation that's going on in these galaxies. And what's happening is that the there's so much star formation going on in the galaxy that the gas that is around all of these stars is heating up and glowing and you're just seeing the overall glow from all of the stars and all of the gas and the whole thing is this just giant amorphous blob of hot glowing gas that is blasting out ultraviolet radiation. And it's believed that these green pea galaxies that we see some just really rare examples nearby are the same kind of thing that we would see early on in the universe. And what's great about these observations is we get that match. You've got these galaxies seen really almost at the beginning of time, but they look very similar to the kinds of galaxies that we're seeing closer. And so we can study the ones that are closer and use that as an analogy to figure out what was going on early on in the universe. And of course, they're incredibly redshifted. So what was ultraviolet when the light was being emitted has been red shifted over time into the red end of the spectrum, really only something like James Webb an infrared telescope can now observe them after billions of years of red shifting. If you like the work that we do, and you think that independent space journalism is something that's worth supporting, why don't you consider joining our Patreon. Now one of the cool things that we're able to do thanks to our patrons is really minimize the amount of advertising that we have anywhere across our network. We don't do any sponsorship ads here in the YouTube channel. I remove all of the ads that I can that YouTube will let me from the uh, from the videos. We don't put any ads in the weekly newsletter that I write. There's no ads at all in the podcast. And then if you join our Patreon, I'll remove all of the ads from the Universe Today website for life. And I really like this balance, a way that people who support the work that we do not only remove the ads for themselves, but actually remove the ads for everybody so that space content, educational space content can be made available to as many people as possible. So if you want to join this amazing community, 
go to patreon.com slash universe today. The NIAC awards are out. Now you probably know I'm a huge fan of NASA's NIAC awards. This is NASA's innovative advanced concepts awards. And this is where they give blocks of money like $100,000 to $500,000 to a really out there idea. Think about like the solar gravitational lens or putting a radio telescope on the far side of the moon or a bizarre fusion drive, like really great ideas that are pushing the very limits of what we know is possible. And some of the coolest ideas are located. And we got a great big announcement of all of the NIAC grants that were awarded. And I've done interviews with people in the past about the NIAC awards. But this time around, I just went straight to the source, I talked to NIAC and said, put me in contact with every single one of the teams who have won some of these awards, and I'm going to interview each one of them and release a video where you can sort of find out about the concept and, and get a sense of, of what this means for the future of astronomy and space exploration. And there was a lot of really great ideas like a space telescope built out of 1000s of tiny CubeSats that would go to the L5 region and be able to observe wavelengths of light that have never been seen before. We can't see them from the surface of the Earth because they're blocked by the atmosphere. And we have to be able to see them from space because it would mean making a space telescope that is ridiculously big. And yet if we could get this space antenna armada launched, we could see things like detect all of the exoplanets with magnetospheres within a dozen light years of Earth. There's another idea of a airplane that could go to Titan a pellet system that could accelerate spacecraft to high velocities and a bunch of other really cool ideas. So just to prepare you in advance, I'm going to be interviewing as many of these people as possible. And then we will release a special series of the 2023 NIAC Awards, where you can find out all of the new science. So stay tuned for that. Is Starship getting close to launch? Alright, so check out this video. It was just released by SpaceX and it shows the SpaceX Starship being put on top of the super heavy booster. And it's a really cool time lapse that shows how this process works. And I guess eventually this will become routine. But for now, it's kind of magical to watch this gigantic crane lift up this spaceship and place it gingerly on top of the booster rocket and Hopefully we're going to be able to see the thing launch soon. Now we don't know exactly when Starship is going to launch. We got an announcement from Musk saying that one of the next big steps is going to do a hot fire test with all 33 of the Raptor engines on the super heavy booster. That's going to be a pretty exciting test and hopefully nothing explodes at that point. I guess everything is controlled in the explosion department, nothing uncontrolled. And Musk said that if things work out really well, then maybe they'll launch by the end of January, more likely next month. I'm just going to stand by my prediction. I'm just, it just seems closer and closer that it's March. So we'll see. Uh, but hopefully we're now just a couple of months for Starship making that first inaugural flight into orbit. Assemble your own extremely large telescope. Alright, this is a cool project that you can do if you have a little time on your hands that you can build a paper version of the European Southern Observatory's extremely large telescope. Now the actual telescope is 39 meters across, it's going to be built in 2027. And this is going to be that next generation telescope 
that potentially could observe Earth sized planets orbiting around sun like stars, it's going to be just a monster of a telescope, but you can make a tiny version of it out of paper, you can go to the European Southern Observatory's website, you can download the plans, print them off on your printer, and then cut them out and actually assemble your own model. Now to give you a sense of how this telescope is going to work and look, and then you can compare it to the final version that is built in the next five years. You could make a big enough piece of paper that you could build a real life size version of the extremely large telescope, and then you just could send your paper mirrors off to get aluminized anodized, and then you're off to the races, you've built a, a telescope for a fraction of the price of the $1.4 billion it's going to cost to build the uh, the extremely large telescope. Those are all the news stories that we had today. Now, of course, we're going to have more information links that you can follow down in the show notes below. You can get even more space news in my weekly email newsletter. I send it out every Friday to more than 60,000 people. I write every word. There are no ads and it's absolutely free. Subscribe at universetoday.com slash newsletter. You can also subscribe to the Universe Today podcast. There you can find an audio version of all of our news, interviews, and Q&As, as well as exclusive content. Subscribe at universetoday.com slash podcast or search for Universe Today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. A huge thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and helps us stay independent. Thanks to all the interplanetary researchers, the interstellar adventurers, and the galaxy wanderers. And a special thanks to Tim Whalen, Dave Verbioff, Josh Schultz, and Andrew M. Gross, who support us at the Master of the Universe level. All your support means the universe to us. All right, that was all the news that we had today. We'll see you next week.